We are indeed thankful for the presence of each and every one this evening, and needless to say, uh, Marianne and I are certainly encouraged by the presence of the ladies that have come down from Belleville today. Uh, I tell, uh, people, they, uh, I don't know that they came down to hear me because uh, after uh, over 14 years, uh, they'd already heard everything I knew and then some. But anyway, they are certainly a source of encouragement to us. You can't be with people that long and not go to love and to appreciate people like that. And we appreciate so very much their coming uh, to be with us. Uh, the lesson this uh, afternoon is really a, a follow-up to some of the things that we talked about in our Bible study class this morning. Uh, we're going to be talking about an expression that we see in the Word of God uh, on several occasions where it talks about people receiving the Word. Just what does it mean to receive the Word? Now this is a statement that is not often heard today in the religious world. You hear people talk about receiving Christ or accepting Christ as their personal Savior. And any time you hear people using these particular statements, usually these statements are made to try to explain away the very thing that Don talked about this morning. And that is the necessity of obedience and the necessity of being baptized for the remission of our sins. And when the Bible talks about accepting Christ or receiving Christ, it certainly is not used in the sense that it is commonly used. Both statements convey false views about receiving Christ. Now this statement is found over in Colossians, the second chapter. If you look there, especially at verse 6 of Colossians 2, the Apostle Paul says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, ye walk in him. Here Paul is emphasizing the necessity of proper behavior once a person has received Christ. But contrary to the use of this statement by many in the religious world, these individuals, as Don pointed out in our lesson this morning, if you look on down in verse 12 of this very same chapter, Paul said these individuals had been buried with Christ in baptism. So these were individuals who had been obedient. They had uh, indeed accepted Christ. They had received Christ. So when we see this statement of receiving the word, just what does it mean? What does it mean to receive the word? Now we won't take the time to look at all of the places that we might look at, but there are three places that this particular statement is found. And I think we can find out a great deal about what it means to receive the Word just by looking at these three examples. The first one is in the second chapter of the book of Acts. When Peter had declared this great lesson to these individuals, proving that the Jesus that they had crucified was the very one that God had raised to be both Lord and Christ. The Bible tells us in verse 41, those that gladly received his word were baptized. Now we'll come back to this a little later on 
and note some of the things that we can learn about receiving the word. But let us look at the other two examples. Over in the 17th chapter of this same book of Acts, Paul had been in the city of Thessalonica. The unbelieving Jews had forced him to leave that particular city and had gone down to the city of Berea. And Luke tells us there in Acts 17 and verse 11 that these Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and they searched the scriptures daily whether the things that Paul was declaring were, to, uh, were indeed true. The third place that I want us to look at and I tell people that I'm so glad that this particular statement is found in the Bible. But if you look over in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13, the Apostle Paul now still writing to these individuals back in Thessalonica. These are not the same people that Luke was talking about in Acts 17.11 when he said that these were more noble than those in Thessalonica. These individuals in Thessalonica were the exact opposite of those unbelieving Jews that Luke had reference to there in Acts 17. If only a reference we had to the Thessalonians was what Luke said there in Acts 17, we might get a very dim view of all of the Thessalonians. But look at what Paul says here in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13. He said, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. So there were those in Thessalonica that received the word. And Paul says he was thankful for that, that they had received it as, the, as it was in truth, the Word of God. Now let us take a look at each one of these examples and see what you and I can learn about what it means to be receptive to the Word. This, uh, since we're here at this one, let's go ahead and look at what Paul says here in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13. He was thankful for the manner in which they had received it because they had received it as God's word. This is a very important thing for us to remember. That when we hear a message from this book, the Bible, we need to realize that this is indeed God's word. We need to reverence his word. The Apostle Paul in giving that warning to the elders of the church at Ephesus there in Acts 20, warned them of the dangers that they were going to face after his departure. But he did not leave them without a solution. He said, And I commend you unto God and to the word of his grace. And so as long as we put our faith in God and in his word, we can face any difficulty that we encounter in life. And let us never forget that. You go back to the Old Testament. There is a story back in uh, the book of Nehemiah that has always impressed me that after the children of Israel had returned from uh, 
the uh, captivity. And they'd asked uh, Ezra and others to stand before them and to declare. <coughs> There's a statement there in Nehemiah 8 that has always impressed me. The Bible says that when Ezra stood upon that pulpit of wood that had been made for the occasion, and he had that scroll, uh, the, uh, or it, I think many versions say book, but it was a scroll, and he stood before them. When he did that, the Bible says the people stood up. Now, I'm not suggesting to you that every time myself or anybody else stands before you and, and speaks from the Word of God, you need to stand up. But I'll tell you what I do say, that we need to have the same kind of reverence and respect for God's Word that caused them to stand up. We see it in so many situations today. A judge in a courtroom, he walks in, the, uh, the people stand up. And in, on so many other occasions, when people want to show their respect, they, they stand up. And we need to have that kind of reverence and respect. But so many times we treat the Word of God lightly. Make a big joke out of it. You know, the Apostle Paul, when he told Timothy to preach the Word and to be urgent in season and out of season, he said to reprove and to rebuke and to exhort with all long-suffering. Contrary to the thinking of some, I don't think most gospel preachers enjoy the reproving and the rebuking part of that. It's so much better to preach lessons of, uh, of exhortation and positive lessons and so forth, but it's necessary at times to preach lessons uh, uh, rebuking those who may be guilty of sin. And sometimes I've done so and had people go, Oh boy, you sure stalked on our toes today. I had to jerk my feet back under the seat two or three times. You know, and just make a big joke out of the teaching of God's Word. Let me tell you something. When I hear a lesson from God's Word that exposes something that is amiss in my life, it's not something I'm going to laugh about. It's not something I'm going to joke about. We read examples of this throughout the Bible where people wept when they learned that their life was not what God would have it to be. But that's not the solution. The solution, of course, is to repent and to make our life right with God. Let us respect the Word as God's Word. There are so many passages that emphasize this particular point. Over in 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, the Apostle Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, emphasized this particular point. He's, uh, it begins there in verse 9 in quoting one of the Old Testament prophets and saying that eye has not seen, ear has not heard. It hasn't even entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for them that love Him. But look at verse 10. But God has revealed them unto us by the Spirit. And the, the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. And he asks a very simple question. Who knoweth the things of man, save the Spirit of man that is in him? That's just another way of saying, I don't know what you're thinking, what's in your mind, unless you reveal it to me in some way. Even so, none of the things of God, save the Spirit of God. And so if I... We need to realize that we have the mind of God revealed. And that's uh, something that we need to emphasize. This is the Almighty. This is the Creator. This is our Almighty God. He, I can know His mind. I can know His will. Why, Paul? Because He has revealed it. 
The Apostle Paul emphasizes basically uh, this uh, uh, same point in Galatians 1, verses 11 and 12, when he marveled that the Galatians were so soon removed from what he had declared to them. But he said there in verse 11, that I certify or make known unto you, depending on which translation you're reading, I make known unto you, brethren, the gospel which I preach unto you, that it is not after man. For neither did I receive it of man, nor was I taught it, but it came to me through revelation of Jesus Christ. It came truly from the mind of God. He emphasizes this process over in Ephesians, the third chapter. When he says to the Ephesians there in verse 3, how that by revelation I wrote afore to you in few words, whereby, he says, when you read, you may perceive or understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Have you ever stopped to think what would it be to have the same knowledge of the mind of Christ that the Apostle Paul had? What Paul is saying here, you can't. Now, he says concerning this mystery of Christ that in other ages or generations it was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Paul, you're one of those apostles. What did you do? He said, I wrote it. Why, Paul? So you can read it. Why? So that you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Yes, when we read that which has been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets, has been preserved and we have access to it, this is indeed God's Word. And it's all sufficient. Paul emphasizes this over in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, when he said that the Scriptures, inspired of God, are profitable for something, are useful for something. It shows how that the inspired scriptures are all that we need. They're profitable for teaching or doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect or complete, thoroughly furnished unto every or all good works. Yes, the word of God is all sufficient. And as such, that word should be our standard of authority for everything that we teach and everything that we practice in the name of religion. And you know, it's interesting that the majority of people in the religious world say that they believe this that they believe that the Scriptures are to be our standard of authority. Let me give you a few examples. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which is used by many religious groups as their uh, creed book, you'll find this particular statement. The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. And therefore, it is to be received because it is the Word of God. Who could take issue with that particular statement? Another statement found in the Methodist Discipline says the Holy Scriptures contain all things necessary to salvation. 
so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man that it should be believed or as an article of faith or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. That sounds almost like what I just got through saying a few minutes ago, doesn't it? One more just for consideration. In Hiscock's Standard Manual for the Baptist Churches of America, he said all evangelical churches profess to take the Holy Scriptures as their only and sufficient guide in matters of religious faith and practice. Baptists especially claim no, to have no authoritative creed except the New Testament. And we could add to these particular creed books and manuals. In fact, in most religious groups, especially among so-called Protestant denominations, if you read their creed books or bylaws of these particular groups, it doesn't matter which one of them that you might be considering, I'd venture to say that you would find a statement very similar to the ones that we have just read in nearly every one of them. But every time that I read these particular statements, I'm reminded of an incident that we read about in the Old Testament. You remember when God had commanded King Saul to go and to utterly destroy the Amalekites, to take no spoil? And a little later on after the battle, Samuel makes his approach to King Saul. Do you remember what King Saul said? Blessed be thou of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. That's what Saul said. And you remember the Bible says that Samuel said, What meaneth then? The bleeding of the sheep, the lowing of the oxen. In other words, had Saul truly done the very thing that he said that he had done, Samuel said these sheep and these oxen would not be here. Now what's that have to do with what we're just talking about? When I read these particular statements in these manuals and disciplines and confessions of faith, I'll paraphrase Samuel's word. What mean of them the existence of the manuals and the disciplines and the confessions of faith? You see the point? If these statements are true, if they truly believe this, these manuals and disciplines and confessions of faith would not exist. But the truth of the matter is, if you follow the teaching of God's Word, you couldn't find out how to become a member of any of these denominations. And that if you want to be a member of any of these denominations, you're going to have to look at the manuals and the disciplines and the confessions of faith to find out what you need to do to become a member of these religious groups. And so, as some of the older preachers used to say, if it's less than the Bible, it's not enough. If it's more than the Bible, it's too much. And if it's the same as the Bible, it's unnecessary. We don't need it. We can throw it away and just look at what the Bible has to say. But the point is that if we are receptive to God's Word, 
we will truly receive it as God's Word and recognize that it is our standard of authority. But now there's another problem that arises. Somebody says, well, these people, if they're up there in the pulpit, they're going to show us a Bible just like you do. How is it that they claim to believe the Bible as their only standard of authority, and yet we have all of these different doctrines, we have all of these different practices? What's the problem? Well, part of the problem is that when we talk about respecting the authority of the Bible, throughout the years there have been two views toward the authority of the Scriptures. The first one is that we as Christians have liberty in Christ. And since we have this liberty in Christ, we are free to do anything that is not expressly forbidden in the Bible. How many times in talking with a friend or neighbor about maybe some particular practice and you get this comeback. Well, where in the Bible does it say not to do it? Now, this is the view toward authority that they're taking. That as long as it's not expressly forbidden in the Bible, then we're at liberty to do it. Now, the second view is, if it is not authorized in the Scriptures, we must not do it. I hope that you have already gathered that this is the view that I believe to be the correct one. But somebody says, well, i got a friend who preaches at a church down the street and he knows the other view. Which one is right? Well, we said a moment ago about the Scriptures being all sufficient. So we need to go to the Scriptures to find out just which of these views is correct. And I think we can do so. Second John 9. John said, Whosoever goeth onward and abideth not in the teaching of Christ hath not God. That is, if we don't abide within the teaching of Christ, that is, to abide within means to stay within. If we go beyond that, John says we don't have God. The passage that we noted there in 2 Timothy 3. What are we going to teach? Paul said the script, inspired scriptures are profitable for doctrine. Alright, I, I hear some teaching. And how do I know whether it's right or whether it's wrong? I need to prove whether it's right or whether... How am I going to do that? He said these same inspired scriptures are profitable for reproof. Well, I examine the script, uh, what I've heard in the light of these scriptures and I find out it's not true. Now, how do I make correction? Paul said these same inspired scriptures are profitable for correction. And so I can go to these inspired scriptures and find out how to make the necessary correction in my life. Now I've made that. How do I live? How do I know now to conduct myself righteously in the sight of God? Paul said those same inspired scriptures are profitable for uh, instruction in righteousness. You see, the scriptures are all sufficient. They're all that we need. And if there was ever a passage that emphasized which of these views is correct, it's uh, Jesus himself in Matthew 7. 
In verse 21, he says, Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of the Father. And then he goes on to even emphasize and illustrate what he's talking about. He said, Many are going to say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Have we not cast out demons or devils in thy name? We've done all these mighty and wonderful works in thy name. If you'd listen to the people in the religious world today, you'd think, oh, Jesus is going to say, oh, come right on in. You've done all of these wonderful things. But know what Jesus said that he was going to say. I'm going to say to you, depart from me. Why? He said, you're workers of iniquity. You may have a version that says workers of lawlessness. And that's the very meaning of this word. Doing something without law, without authority. And so here were people who were saying, we're doing all of these wonderful things in thy name. And Jesus says, I did not authorize it. They were workers of iniquity. We need to repeat and repeat and repeat the words of Peter in 1 Peter 4 and verse 11. If any man speak, let him speak as it were, the oracles of God. So yes, we learn from this passage in 1 Thessalonians 2 that when we hear this word, we respect it as the word of God and respect the authority thereof. Let's look at uh, the statement there in Acts 17 and verse 11. These Bereans. Some things we can learn about receiving the word. These were more noble, he says, and of course, than those in Thessalonica, and we understand that to be those unbelieving Jews that had forced Paul to leave the city of Thessalonica. They were free of prejudice. They received the word with all readiness of mind. They were willing to hear something that was different from their previous beliefs. How willing are we to listen and to hear something that may be different from that which we've already made up our mind that we want to believe? Here were people who were willing to receive a message that was different from what they had previously believed. But let me emphasize that even though they had this readiness of mind to receive the word, that didn't mean that they were gullible. Luke says they searched the scriptures daily to see whether or not the things that were being declared were true. Paul, in writing to these same Thessalonians, says there in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 21, he says, Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. So many times today we turn that around. We hold fast to something and then we start trying to prove that it's good. Now Paul says, Prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. John tells us in 1 John 4 and verse 1, Beloved, believe not all the spirits, but try the spirits, whether they're God. Why? Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So we need to receive the word as the word of God. We need to do so with readiness of mind, free of prejudice, being willing to accept that word even if it's different from something that we have previously believed. And then as we look at that first passage that we looked at in Acts 2 and verse 41, 
Those that gladly receive the word were what? Were baptized. They ha- we must be obedient to that word. It's not just saying, oh, yeah, that, that's a good lesson. I, I, I agree with that. We must take that word and make application of it to our lives and to be obedient to that word which we hear. Receiving the word is not some passive thing. It's something that we must do. And not only that, we must continue in that word. These individuals that believed what Peter had preached, who were receptive to it and were obedient to it, the Bible says they continued steadfastly Verse 42, in the Apostles' Doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. It was something that became a part of their lives as it led them and guided them in what they believed. And so each and every one of us need to be receptive to God's Word. We need to recognize it for what it is, as the Thessalonians did, as in truth, the Word of God and finding it to be true, and examining the things that we find taught in the pages of God's Word. We need to be receptive to it, even if it's different from something that we believed in the past. And then to submit our lives in obedience thereto. That example that we have there in the second chapter of the book of Acts needs to be emphasized and re-emphasized over and over. Here were devout people who believed that they were serving God. They had come to Jerusalem, many of them from long distances, to worship God. And then here's this man standing before them and pointing the finger, so to speak, at them and saying, You did by the hand of lawless men crucify this one, the very one that David spoke about, the very one that Joel had prophesied about the very one that we can read about in the Old Testament. You have crucified this one. And what's been the result? God has raised that same Jesus whom you crucified to be both Lord and Christ. You know, they believed that. They they believed the evidence that Peter presented that indeed the very one that they had been guilty of crucifying, God had raised to be both Lord and Christ. And it caused them to ask a very simple question to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren. What shall we do? I've often said that if what is taught in the religious world today is true, this is the best opportunity that Peter would ever have to affirm that and to teach it. He could have said, well, you've already done it. Jesus has already done everything for you. And if you believe that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, you've already done all that you need to do. But you know and I know that that's not the answer that Peter gave to that question. Peter told them to repent and to be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And as Don pointed out in his lesson this morning, as you look at all of the examples that we find revealed in the pages of God's Word, of individuals receiving that Word and being obedient to it, it's the same in every case. 
individuals upon hearing the word of God believed that Jesus was the Christ. They were ready to turn from their sins to acknowledge that faith and to confess Him as the Son of God and to humbly submit their life in obedience to His will in being baptized into Jesus Christ for the remission of their sins. If you haven't already done so, that's what you need to do if you want to be receptive to God's Word. If you've once done this, this is something that we must continue to do, to be receptive to His Word. And we find that there is sin in our life after that we've been baptized. We need to be like Simon there in Acts 8. He believed and was baptized, Luke says. That's what Jesus said a person needed to do. But he did something else. He sinned afterwards. Peter rebuked him. And Peter told him what he now needed to do, and that is to repent. And to pray God if perhaps the thought of his heart would be forgiven him. Simon did so. So if you find yourself in either case, either never having received the word and being obedient to it and becoming a child of God and being baptized for the remission of your sins, or after doing so of sin in your life, whatever the case may be, if you need to receive the word, we encourage you to make known that desire to do so by stepping forward right now as together we stand and sing the song that has been selected.